And now, coming to you live from the Archipelag Hotel in Orland, Finland, it's the Cood Street Podcast with Gary K. Wolf, Karen Titpeck, and me, Cheryl Morgan. And Cheryl Morgan, thank you very much for being Jonathan Strahan, who is, who is not in Finland, uh, much to his chagrin, I am sure. So this is a podcast without Jonathan, but it's our first podcast from Finland, and our our guest, uh, besides our old friend Cheryl Morgan, who has been our kind of constitutional scholar when it comes to <laughs> awards and things like that, uh, is guest of honor Karen Tidbeck, who um, was... Uh, we, we've never been on the podcast before, have you? No, we but we've, we've certainly talked about you. Um, oh, dear. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, because Cheryl, as many of our listeners know, has long been one of the nominators for the William F. Crawford Award. And uh, a few years ago, when uh, under the good graces of Jeff and Ann Vandermeer, uh, uh, Jagannath was published by, I'm going to say it wrong because I want to say squeaky dog. And I want <laughs> cheeky frog. Cheeky frog, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the squeaky dogs are other people. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Um, although we could talk about, we could call them that from now on. Um, but that was a wonderful collection, and um, it raised an issue which we want to talk about this morning. Uh, the, the, the question of translations, uh, which has come up more than once. Uh, you not only won the Crawford Award for that collection, but you won one of the very few science fiction and fantasy translation awards that uh, a group involving Cheryl and myself gave out uh, for translating your own work. I did, yeah. And is... Is, is that a practice which is common in among Swedish writers, do you think? Or? No, it isn't. I'm almost the only one as far as I'm aware. Uh-huh. Um, and I did it out of desperation to, to get published. Mm-hmm. Because the, uh, the market in Sweden was extremely small when I, when I started publishing short stories. Uh, there were only, I think there were two or three magazines that published fantastic fictions. And that was about it, and they had a rotation mm-hmm. of about maybe 500 copies. So me translating my own work came out of need to get to a bigger market. And what about novels? Is it the same story there? That there, I, I'm sure there are no specialty science fiction publishers in Sweden, are there? Well, there are some specialty fantasy publishers. Ah. Um, fantasy is at the moment bigger than science fiction, and it has kind of hit the mainstream mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean it gets translated into English. I'm desperate to read Nain Ormis's novels, but mm. no sign mm-hmm. has yet. No, it's been difficult to get it out there, and I'm not quite sure why, because it seems like there's an interest from the English-speaking mm-hmm. world. Um, yeah. I'm not sure why more hasn't been translated. Well, there's this whole thing of persuading people to buy translated books. Uh, I. I mean, the the typical figure that people quote is 3%. I think Johanna Sinisalo mentioned that. She mentioned that yesterday in, in, in her, her talk. That is, that yeah. 3% of the fiction published in the United States is translated from any other language, not just Swedish or Finnish, but Chinese, French, German. Yeah. Uh, and so that does create a problem. The other problem, uh, from the point of view of American publishers, is making a translation cost-effective. Because you're paying a translator. Uh, there are some cases I've heard of where the translator ends up making more money than the author does from a translation. Um, I'm not surprised. Well, if you're, if you're going to translate a Neil Stevenson novel, you have a right to ask for money. <laughs> you certainly do, yes. 
Um, and it, it's hard work translating. It's a really skilled job. It really is. Which is why we were trying to um, recognize it with an award. But I think the problem we came up with that award was the same problem in a small scale that publishers came up with, and that is finding people who can do this consistently over time. Right, and, and simply lack of interest from the, the readers. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a number of people who very kindly supported it, um, but it was extremely difficult to get people interested in having an award of that type. I think the other problem, though, and this goes back to Karen, to your kind of, to your kind of fiction, which, by which I mean good fiction, but <laughs> what we might call literary fiction. Uh, just Was it last week uh, Wolfgang Jeschke died, I guess? One of the leading German, best-selling German writers of uh, more or less literary science fiction. He had had, I think, in the last ten years, one of his novels published in the United States, The Kasanis Game. Didn't do very well. Uh, it was published, I believe, because Tom Doherty believed in it. Um, but when we did have successful German translations in the United States, they were all Perry Rodin novels. Right. Which yeah. means that maybe the fiction isn't tacky enough to be <laughs> to reach a popular audience. I don't know. I mean, on, on the subject of Germans, I, I loved Andreas Eschbach's The Carpet Makers, mm-hmm. and apparently there is a new translation available. There's a book called Lord of All Things, which in German won something called the Kurt Lasswitz Prize in mm-hmm. 2012, and a, an English translation was released in uh, 2014, last year. Um, I don't know a huge amount really? about it, but according to the blurb... Uh, it features uh, a Japanese technology wizard and his French girlfriend who set out to try to solve world poverty and, and uh, you know, have a few troubles along the way. That sounds delightful, but how do we, how do we create a demand for this sort of thing? Um, and how do you find the readers once you're there? I mean, Cheeky Frog, I got it right this time, had the advantage of being run by two people who know the American market, who know how to get your book in the hands of the right readers. But, uh, and this is ironic because I didn't know about, I knew, I knew you had this novel, uh, I'm sorry, the title is... Oh, the novel. Amatka. Yeah. Amatka. Which, ironically, is apparently a novel about language. Yes. And about language changing reality. <laughs> and if anything should be available in multiple languages, I would think it would be that. This is true. Well, there is. I, I've translated it, so it is ready, and my agent has it. So, oh, excellent. Uh, you know, keep your fingers crossed. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Good. And the good news for this year, of course, is the, uh, the the first major Chinese translation to get on a Hugo and a Nebula ballot, uh, Sichuan Lu's The Three-Body Problem. The second, which also had the advantage of being translated by Ken Lu, but the second volume is translated by Joel Martinson. Uh, and I, I have not started reading it yet, but that's uh, th- there's a lot of attention going to something like that. Yeah. One of the issues, of course, is that a lot of the translated work, even if it is mm-hmm. science fiction, tends not to come to the attention of our uh, our readers. That it may well be published by one of these small, specially specialty mm-hmm. literary presses, like, for example, uh, Pasiuska Line and Sir Rabbit Back Literature Society, which I know mm-hmm. you reviewed because you you heard about it. But that wasn't published by a science fiction press. It was published by a British company that specializes in translations. The, there's another issue as well in that quite often when publishers buy translations, they're buying stuff that is young adult. Uh, and mm. it goes out into the young adult market and 
it's never sent to Locus or anything. I mean, I've got a, a couple of series that I'd like to recommend. One is uh, the Engelsforce trilogy by uh, Sarah B. Elfgren and Matt Strandberg. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're Swedish writers. So mm -hmm. It's been incredibly successful in Sweden, is that right? Oh, it absolutely has been. And it's a, a huge hit. A film in production? Yes. Uh, the first one is out, uh, and it's been in theatres for a few months now, and it's also mm -hmm. been really... it's it's. Uh, gotten fantastic, fantastic, uh, is, it, is it criticism when you get positive stuff said? Oh yeah, it's still critics, yes. It's really gotten critical acclaim. Mm. So yeah. The film has. It? Oh, the film has. And this is, this, is a this is a young adult series? It's a young adult series about a, a group of uh, young girls in a, a small town outside Stockholm who discover that they are witches. I've read the first mm. book, which is The Circle. There are two other books, Fire and the Key, now available in English translation, and I, I warmly recommend them. And the circle is a Swedish language film, uh, yes. So it has it probably not got American or British release yet. I'm not sure, but you should probably ask Sarah because she's here. And Matt's oh, she here. is. Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah. excellent. Yeah. So but young then, adult is as big in Sweden as mm. it is everywhere else. Oh, it's huge, and mm. a lot of it. The, there's a lot of fantasy that's published as young adult, um, mm. and becomes huge that way. And uh, my my novel was published as a crossover or man marketed as a crossover novel. I'm mm. not sure if uh, the, the category exists abroad. Um, it does to some extent. I think it's it consists largely of Neil Gaiman, but uh, <laughs> right. but I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was both an American, both an adult and a young adult version of uh, the Graveyard Book. I think mm. published in the UK. Mm. It, it's all very complicated. It's a marketing categories. I was in uh, Suzanne Van Royen's talk on YA yesterday. Mm. And she very clearly defined YA as books that were about young adults, uh, about teenagers, and um, which featured teenagers' problems as part of the plot. Uh, but I've seen books, I mean, uh, Rachel Hartman's Serafina books, for example, mm -hmm. are being marketed as for younger readers, but they're not about uh, young adults, and they certainly don't address YA issues. And that's um, the same thing with Amatka, my novel, in which the, the protagonist is in the mid-30s. Mm -hmm. So it really, it doesn't really have anything to do with young people at all. It was just marketed that way, and I'm still to this day not quite sure why. Because you're female. Probably, well, yeah. Maybe that's yeah. it. I don't know. The uh, the two conditions you said are fascinating to me because featuring young adults by itself uh, would include any number of science fiction novels published prior to 1970, most of Arthur Clarke. But dealing with young adult problems seems to narrow that field quite a bit because we've talked about. Um, on this podcast before, we've talked about novels that were never written as young adult novels until they got repurposed as such, Ender's Game being the most famous example. Uh, but not the only example. If you go outside of science fiction in the States, novels like The Catcher in the Rye or Flowers for Algernon are now staples of you know, middle school and, uh, and secondary school curricula. They're classics of young adult literature, even though um, in the case of Flowers for Algernon, it's not a it's not a young adult, but it does deal with suddenly, you know, dealing with learning, with with growing, with change. So, so that that idea of the themes is, is fascinating. Mm. I, there is another young adult series I'd like to okay. draw to people's attention. It's by uh, Sala Simaka, who is a Finnish writer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on a panel with her at FinCon last year with Johannes Inesalo, and again, it's it's a young adult fantasy series. It's a reworking of the Snow White fairy story mm -hmm. in three volumes called White as Snow, Red as Blood, and Black as Ebony. 
and apparently it set all sorts of records for, for sales uh, in translation when it was first published. Uh, lots and lots of people picked it up in different countries around Europe, but I've seen <coughs> almost no discussion about it in the science fiction uh, press. I wonder sometimes if uh, publishers mistakenly get the idea that avoiding the science fiction press is a good idea. I think there, they do. There, there, there are cases where I've talked to people who just, at Locus Magazine, for example, we don't get review copies, as you mentioned, sometimes because they don't want to be, well, what our friend Graham Slight calls genre cooties. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't want to be associated uh, with that. And I think there was even some evidence with Margaret Atwood, who is a brilliant writer, but really in the early days of uh, marketing Oryx and Crake. She didn't seem to have a problem with The Handmaid's Tale. But with Oryx and Crake, she almost said she didn't want to be reviewed by science fiction reviewers. Uh, because the Margaret Atwood market, frankly, is a lot, lot, lot larger than the, than the science fiction market. It certainly is. This is really interesting. I think it was for that same reason that, my, that Amatka was marketed as not science fiction, but as a mm -hmm. dystopia. Which is commercially viable in Sweden. That's well, no, very that's much YA. <laughs> but that's yeah. fascinating to me because dystopia is like a separate genre from science fiction now. Yeah. Um, and if you have um, any YA novel, there's another YA series starting. Uh, I, I got I got a copy in the mail last week, and I can't keep track of them. And the word dystopia is all over it, but nowhere does it mention science fiction, speculative fiction. It, it's it's simply a uh, a, a setting, uh, and I, I, we've, we've had any number of discussions about why young adults are attracted to dystopias, so I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on that. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure, but what I do know is that dystopias have been incredibly popular in Sweden ever since like the 1930s. It's been the, uh, the literary acceptable science fiction to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, ever since uh, Harry Martinson and his, uh, the epic science fiction poem Aniara, mm -hmm. uh, ever since that and Karin Boyer's novel Calocaine, I don't know, it's probably translated. Calocaine has been translated, yeah. yes. Um, it, uh, it probably has its roots in workers' literature uh, because those, especially Harry Martinson, mm -hmm. started out writing workers' literature and then moved on to uh, science fiction. So, uh, let's see, I kind of lost my track of thought there. Well, we're talking about the popularity uh, of, of, of why these things are popular. And Martinson, for example, uh, well, that's actually a Generation Starship tale, isn't it? It so, is. Uh, it is. And uh, except the the tale devolves as to onto the society that evolves aboard the Starship. Mm. Uh, that was actually translated and published by Blue Jay Books, I think, as a science fiction book in the states. Um, and it was, it was translated as a poem. It wasn't turned into a prose. And of course, there's the Carl Berger Blomdahl opera as well. But uh, I don't know anything about Martinson's career except for that one work, and I wonder if his Nobel Prize was a little like Doris Lessing's Nobel Prize, that he got it in spite of having written the science fiction work rather than because of having written it. It's, uh, it might very well be. And this, the dystopias written in Sweden after this are sort uh -huh. of very... They do. They smell of workers' literature, and it's, it's a very, very. They're very realist. Mm -hmm. They wear realist jumpsuits, as it were. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> phrase. Uh, and the well, one of the great uh, dystopias in American literature is by Jack London, who was certainly a workers, a socialist workers' writer, The Iron Heel. Uh, and it's it's the same sort of warning 
I guess, of what, of what the rich will do to you if they are unfettered. Uh, that's essentially what London was talking about. It, it's interesting, actually, because I was thinking about why young adults like dystopias, and I think the root of it is the same thing. It's a, a dystopia is a great leveler. It gives people who previously mm-hmm. had no power some kind of ability because society is broken down and all of the structures of society which keep the patriarchy in control are no longer there. So that for workers' literature, but also for young adults, that they now have agency because there isn't adulthood keeping them down. I agree with that. And I actually was talking uh, in another podcast in, in, in Stockholm about this issue because it seems to fascinate everybody. I think, I think an additional factor is that the kind of literature that at least in the United States was a kind, was a foundation of young adult fiction was frontier fiction. Uh, the, one of the most popular series of, uh, of young, what we would now call young adult novels were Laura Ingalls Wilder's The Little House on the Prairie series, which is about kids in the frontier where essentially, again, it's a leveler. You have a chance to make your life from scratch. And, I, and, and the argument is that, uh, that, that young kids today inherit everything. They're, they're, they're channeled from the moment they're in elementary school. They're trained to take exams. You know. So the idea of a world in which all those structures are gone uh, is having a new frontier world. Uh, and, and you're right, not only strips away the old patriarchal urban governmental structures, but it sort of reduces the landscape to uh, something where you can uh, create yourself. And this is not all young adults. Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven is a terrific novel. Again, not published as science fiction. Uh, clearly dystopian, but it's, it's not dystopian in the classic sense. It's not about a terribly bad society. It's just about a post-apocalyptic it, it's society. It's a very different type of dystopian novel. It's not mm-hmm. a, a novel where the, the world has collapsed and the heroes mm-hmm. are going to remake it from you. Right. It's a nostalgic dystopian novel. It's, it's here we are in the dystopian world and mm-hmm. we have lost all of these things. No more iPhones, no mm-hmm. more skinny lattes, no more Sunday supplements. How sad. Now, Swedish literature, is there a distinction, do you think, between post-apocalyptic literature and dystopian literature? Yes, uh, kind of. The dystopian literature sort of, it's very urban, I suppose Mm. you could say. It it, it deals a lot in uh, oppressive governments, uh, sort of, I suppose you could call it the socialist or communist nightmare where people are being monitored Mm. and oppressed. And then you have the post-apocalyptic society where, uh, as you say, everything has been, um, all structures have been obliterated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are definitely two two separate ones, yeah, I would say. There's a third category which seems to have disappeared from the discussion. I think the phrase came from Kingsley Amos, what he called an anti-utopia. A dystopia in his formulation, and this may have been in New Maps in Hell, New Maps of Hell, was that a, a dystopia is clearly a really bad place. It's a bad government. It's 1984. It's uh, being oppressed. It's the Hunger Games. Uh, an anti-utopia, in Amos's formulation, was a society in which everybody believes themselves to be happy, and they are actually in a terrifying society uh, by our standards. That's so, so. It's a very ironic kind of fiction, Robert Silverberg's uh, The World Inside, for example, 
where all the characters living in these horrible hive-like arcologies believe themselves to be absolutely happy. And um, that seems to me to be a much rarer kind of Yeah, the, there are a few that I can think of that get close to it in that they're based on societies where a, a powerful government has done things for the good of the people to make them happier and healthier mm -hmm. and, and whatever. So, for example, there's The Method by Julie Zay, who's a, a German mm -hmm. writer um, that turned up in translation a few years back where everybody is, is supposed to be very healthy. And, in fact, uh, one of Stephen Erickson's short stories in the um, Buckland and Cobblebrack mm -hmm. short stories that he wrote is um, essentially make, making fun of Californian uh, health obsessions where our, our uh, necromancer heroes go to this city where everybody is required to be healthy. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, there's the, the new Johanna Sinisello novel, which uh, she read part of us mm -hmm. uh, to us yesterday, uh, in which the government has banned all dangerous drugs, and the only way to get high is to eat chilies. Mm -hmm. I could see that happening next week, practically. <laughs> I'm very jealous that I didn't get to take part in the research. Mm-hmm. It, now this may be something because we're in Finland now, or we're in we're in a semi-autonomous region of possibly Finland. I guess I, I never quite understood the governmental. Well, thing. belongs to Finland. Okay, yes. uh, but and it may be because of uh, having seen Finnish and Swedish work promoted. The, the sense I'm getting is that uh, Sweden and Finland. I don't know about Norway, but that Scandinavia in general seems to have a much more active fantasy and science fiction writing community. Uh, these days than than the rest of Europe. Uh, I know you've mentioned Germany. Uh, I know that there's activity in France. I don't know much about Spain. The the thing about uh, the Nordic countries mm -hmm. is is firstly that they all speak perfect English, and therefore it's easier for them to promote. But also they've been ah. very active, particularly the Finns, very active in promoting their work outside of their own country. Uh, for example, they you know, they've they've got the Worldcon campaign, and they've been producing these mm -hmm. little magazines called The Finnish Weird. There's a new one that they've just put out for this convention, which again has got some fabulous translated short stories. Now, other countries in Europe, there's a lot going on. There are some really great conventions in France, uh -huh. um, so Imaginals and uh, Utopials. Um, so there's lots, lots of stuff being produced by Rajalon in France, mm -hmm. but it's all for the French market. Um, they, they don't have much interest in, in moving outside. Um, Germany, again, there's lots of stuff being produced, but it's all for the German market. I'll be very interested about okay, the, the Eurocon mm. in Dortmund in mm. 2017. And to learn about Spain, come to our... Oh, you can't come to the translation panel because you're being interviewed by Neil Harrison at the same time. Ah. But Ian Watson will be telling us all about what's happening in Spain and come to the Eurocon in Barcelona next year. I, I've already talked to Ian about that. Ian Watson is also here. We'd love to get him on the podcast. But you made, you made a point which I think um, may, be, may, may explain why, at least in the United States, we're much more aware of, um, of Swedish and Finnish science fiction, uh, that the markets in, in Germany and France and Spain are considerably larger than the market in Finland, I suspect. So oh, the, the market for Spanish language fiction is enormous. Of course, that's worldwide. Yeah, that's worldwide. Uh, it's probably, possibly, English, Spanish, and Mandarin maybe the three most. Is it Mandarin that they publish uh, mm. most science fiction in? And uh, Bengali. Oh, Bengali, yes. The, the, I, I keep hearing there's a huge South Asian market as well, uh, which we never see. Uh, 
And, 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 but but the fact that I should put a plug in for the fabulous people at Blast Publications who do these anthologies of Tamil science fiction. Mm -hmm. Very very good people. But everybody in Sweden and Norway and Finland, as you say, seem to uh, be very fluent in English. A friend of mine who has moved to Norway was surprised to find that he was trying to get work, uh, not actually translating, but sort of representing uh, English language works or Norwegian language works in the United States. And it turned out that it's very difficult to get Norwegian translations because by the time the translation is done, everybody's read the book in English. Yep, uh, that's the same. It's the same issue in Sweden. I mean, first of all, we learn English from a very early age, yeah. and we're marinated in, in American and British culture. Um, so, and and also in this thing with the translations, I talked to uh, my Swedish editor, and she said that uh, there was such a dearth of translations uh, into Sweden into Swedish that people just got fed up and started buying uh, the English uh, English books mm -hmm. right away. So when <coughs> the Swedish publishers got around to start translating science fiction and fantasy into Swedish again, they wouldn't really sell. Because people because they'd already read them. Yeah, they already read them and they had transitioned into uh, English already. So what's happened is that uh, there's a market for translations from other languages instead. So mm -hmm. there are some Polish and Russian science fiction and fantasy authors instead who, have been, who are huge in Sweden. That's encouraging to me because one of the things I just discovered, uh, I was preparing a lecture and I had to reread uh, Stanislaw Lim's Solaris, uh, which was available for 30 years in the United States only in a bad, what turned out to be a very bad translation of the French translation, which changed characters' names, elited chapters, and it was finally a professor, not, not really a writer, but a professor whose style is serviceable at least, translated it directly from the Polish. But it was available then as an audiobook only for about two years. So only about a one or two years ago an e-book, there's still not a print copy, but you can now get an e-book of a direct Polish to English translation of Solaris, and it's not at all what we thought it was. Um, and so the, the other question that comes up that that raises is what about science fiction classics? What about um, Jules Verne, what about It's the whole question of, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where the original translation managed to remove all of the anti-British things that Verne had put into it, and all the communist ranting <coughs> that, uh, that Ned gets up to. And this is fair, I should, I, I should really read the Swedish and the English translation side by side. Well, there, there's a new uh, translation of it done by some people in the, in the US Navy, I believe, came out a few years back. Well, all of Verne has been retranslated uh, by people at Wesleyan University Press. There's a professor named Arthur Evans. And some of it's been translated for the first time. There's, there's a novel called Travel Scholarships, which had never been published in English. But some of the stories, like uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, since they were so popular, uh, were the translations were sometimes commissioned by newspaper editors for serialization. And character names would be changed to write. Speeches would be, sometimes, apparently, <coughs> chapters were added because they didn't think there was enough action in the novel. So the 19th century American editions of Jules Verne were <clears throat> like comic book adaptations. They, 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 they were, and Verne and his Hetzel had no control over this at all. So we didn't really see until probably 15 or 20 years ago that apparently Verne was a fairly graceful prose writer in France. 
Uh, you could never have told that from the English translations. They're just, the, the classic old English translations are just horrible. Um, so, but if we went back to more recent classic science fiction, um, like, I don't know, Theodore Sturgeon or um, Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein, do those tend to be read <coughs> in translation or in English? Well, there is um, there is a, a series of translations called the Delta series, mm -hmm. uh, which were extremely popular in the I think seventies and eighties, uh, which were the only source of science fiction for a, for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, but those aren't really read anymore, um, and people these days just read the English originals right away. But many of us grew up with the Delta series. Well, I guess that that's essentially what I'm asking is uh, how did. Uh, how did people get a sense of the history of science fiction and fantasy growing up in Sweden? Well, for me, it was through the Swedish translations mm -hmm. in the library. And um, my library, where I grew up, it was it was pretty stuffed with science fiction and fantasy. Uh, mm -hmm. All of it was in the YA section, obviously. <laughs> it never yeah. ended up in the adult <coughs> section. Well, one of the things that uh, we keep coming across in, in the academic panels that I'm on here is that the attitudes of academia in Sweden are toward science fiction and fantasy are not any better than they are in, in, in the U.S. and probably worse than they are in the U.K. No, it's um, <coughs> science fiction and fantasy are not considered serious literature, mm -hmm. unless it's a dystopia. Ah, maybe that's one of the reasons people are attracted to, to dystopia. It's, the, uh, yeah, the, it's literary, it's appropriate literature. Mm-hmm. Mm. That, that raises issues that go beyond science fiction and fantasy for me. It, it, it suggests that, <clears throat> that grim, depressing literature is more real than celebratory literature. Well, I think it also goes back to <coughs> the worship of workers' literature that we have in Sweden. Um, ah, yes. So that's probably, it's, it probably plays in. It all sounds very Methodist to me. Very Methodist. Yes, yes. So it should be self-improving literature. So. Well, it's. It, I don't think you're entirely wrong. Literature is supposed to be. Um, it's not really for fun. Yes, it's supposed yes. to be educational. Yes, this, this is exactly the attitude that my mother was brought up with in a small Methodist community in South Wales. Mm -hmm. That you shouldn't read literature for entertainment. You should only read to make make yourself a better person. But that's academia, though. I mean, we we haven't really touched on the fact that uh, on um, crime uh, literature. Mm, indeed, yes, for which Sweden is now famous. Yeah, it's uh, that's probably our biggest export right now. Thanks to a science fiction fan. Yeah, who was that? Stieg Larsson. He began as oh, a science fiction fan. He was a science fiction fan. Yes, yes, right. Yes, talk to young Henry Holberg about it sometime. Yeah, he I used should. to go to conventions. Oh, I absolutely should. But that's. Uh, in, in some ways, that seems more allied to, to traditional horror fiction or terror fiction, because those are so dark and so grim uh, by the standards of, of, of traditional police procedural mysteries, because uh, Scandinavian or, or, or European mysteries have always been popular in the United States. There was Nicholas Frayling, there was uh, Per Wallou, and who was the other one? Maj Sowal. Uh, am I pronouncing that at all right? Mm -hmm. uh, per, per Wallou, W-A- H L O O and Maj M H A. What was the last name? Per and Maj Sjövall. I wasn't even close, was I? Uh, well, it's not very intuitive. But no, they were they were very popular in the states. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, they were translated uh, back in what the fifties and sixties, I think. Mm. 
uh, and the Dutch writer Nicholas Freling was uh, was also enormously popular because he had developed. Uh, they, I think all of them developed kind of police procedurals uh, as a form before the United States had developed it really as a form, <clears throat> and to some extent. What's happened since then, it seems to me, in, in, in what I've read, is much darker and uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the mystery fiction in, in, in the Nordic countries has sort of followed the pattern of rock music in the Nordic countries, becoming really dark and violent and black metal mystery fiction. Um, oh, come back, Lordy, all is forgiven. <laughs> I was just going to say, do you, do you consider Scandinavian crime literature the, the black metal of the genre? Uh, so I, since I don't need, read enough uh, crime literature to say, to speak about it knowledgeably, and a lot of what I know about it I've picked up from my friend Elizabeth Hand, who has not only read a lot of it and listened to a lot of black metal, but written fiction in, in that tone, that there, there's some connection to it. There's some connection to it in the same way that there was a kind of connection at one point between what we thought of as cyberpunk literature and actual punk culture. Now that seems to have separated 30 years ago, but I, I, I can't help but think there's some kind of a the same cultural d dynamic working in both. Well, I read. I haven't read a lot of Swedish crime. I have read mm -hmm. Stig Larsson's novels, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they do have. There's a huge social justice pathos that mm -hmm. he has. Um, I mean, the Swedish title of the girl with the dragon tattoo, which is mm. a really lame translation, because the original title is Men Who Hate Women. Yes, I did read that somewhere. Yeah. And there's a very strong, obviously feminist <coughs> theme in that character, who is, um, arguably she's one of the most popular characters in fiction in the last 20 or 30 years, I would say worldwide. That's um, really cool. Uh, it, it is, uh, and, and some of that has to do with the film. Uh, but uh, but uh, she was a very popular character before the film came along. So, but again, there's a, there's that darkness, there's that sense of injustice being corrected, in in all of those novels, which could go back to the social justice themes that you were talking about in working class literature. Um, but op optimistic literature, uh, but, we could mention Susan Liu because one of the things he was telling us about China is that the reason he's successful as a science fiction writer is because they still believe a la Hugo Gernsback, that you learn science, that this is good for you, that science fiction is good for you because it teaches you things. Um, and he doesn't seem to mind that at all because he, he sells billions of copies of, of books and things. But the optimistic literature has always been state-sponsored literature. Soviet, well, what they called Soviet realism, which wasn't really realism, uh, the, the kind of uh, Chinese <coughs> propaganda fiction in films. and films. When you talk about the rise of working class literature, my question is, was, there a, was that a counter to something else? Was there an official narrative of Sweden as a utopia that needed to be criticized in some way? Oh, that's such a, <coughs> that's such a good question. Um, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, um, I can give uh, an example from American literature because the, the classic American literature sanctioned narrative in popular fiction for young adults was a series of stories about a character by, by an author, a pseudonym of Horatio Alger. And they were all rags to riches stories. One of them was called Ragged Dick. <clears throat> they were all about young kids, usually boys, but occasionally girls, because little orphan Annie fits into this mythology, who through pluck and determination and honesty uh, 
manage to attain great success, which usually involves not doing anything other than befriending somebody who's very wealthy who then dies. But that was the American myth of success, against which writers like Jack London and Frank Norris and Mark Twain uh, were writing. So it, when you have a working class literature, my first question is always, is there a competing narrative? That is there some reason for that? Uh, and it may not even be in fiction. It may just be a kind of national myth. Well, there is this. Um, well, working class literature, literature has it has a long history. If you think back in, Sweden, on, in of the mm -hmm. history of Sweden, it's not that long ago that uh, Sweden was a developing country. We lost twenty five percent of the population to uh, to emigration. Every, everyone who could immigrated mm -hmm. to the United States back uh, in the eighteen hundreds. And uh, there were there were famines. Uh, there was a huge economic recession. Uh, we were on the brink of drinking ourselves to death, which mm -hmm. is why uh, there are still. I mean, uh, the only place you can get alcohol in Sweden is still in state uh, sanctioned state. Mm -hmm. stores. So hmm. um, Sweden was a developing country, and I think that there's a memory of this that sort of lived on in literature as well. There was a very, Swedish films have been popular in the States, not just Bergman, but one of the ones that really seemed successful, and you, I, I can't remember the name of the director, but there was a series of either two or three films, the first of which was called The Immigrants and the other was The New Land. Oh yeah, those are huge. Uh, the writer's called Wilhelm Moberg. Mm -hmm. And, but they, that, that's exactly the story you told. They were, they were yeah. both extremely realistic, uh, depressing narratives of people picking up in Sweden, finding their way across the, the uh, it, it was fascinating to Americans because a lot of Americans couldn't figure out why there are so many Swedish people in Minnesota, which is an interesting question, but the, the, the film not only depicts losing children, babies dying on the voyage, it's a very dark film, and at the end of the film, uh, before the second one, uh, the family simply they, they, they get on a train and go as far west as they can, and then they get on a stagecoach and go as far west as they can, and they just walk until the father finds a valley he likes. <clears throat> and, and that turns out to be what we now know as Minnesota. That's almost a science fiction narrative itself. <clears throat> That's a, it's, a, it's a first contact sort of thing. Um, so, so there is, I guess, a kind of... Uh, self-preservation going on in the, in the working class narrative that we have to hold s Swedish society together by um, sheer grit? It's very possible, yeah. I wonder, is, uh, is that unique to Sweden? Because, uh, again, from the perspective of the states, uh, Sweden and Norway are very close, I mean, uh, obviously, and the distinction between Swedish and Norwegian fiction, rock music, film is uh, is not as distinct as it is with, with Finnish culture, because Finnish culture is such a, just a strange language to everybody. <laughs> um, is, do you have a sense of whether Norway had a similar narrative? Uh, I'm not sure. Personally, I'm closer to... Uh, I have more of a relationship to Denmark, oh, okay. because I'm, I'm married to Dane. Mm -hmm. So I have, I've had more exchange with Danish culture than I have with Swedish, and those two are very closely linked. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm not quite sure of the, the Norwegians, to be honest. Of course, you know, Nordic countries do have this tradition of emigrating to places. This is true, <laughs> we all did. They, yeah, they, they conquered our country quite uh, 
uh, effectively back mm. in the uh, I don't know what sort of sixth or seventh century, something like that. Um, and, and of course, uh, the, the the Russian people, mm -hmm. uh, the Rus, were originally Vikings from Sweden. In fact, I I believe that they've done DNA studies and whatever, and, and the the Rus actually came from Orland. Yeah, no, so. it's really amazing. yes, that's cool. Yeah. Um, the one person I I know had written about Rus Vikings is in uh, Cecilia Holland's series of historical novels, which. Um, which is another strategy that I find interesting, and I don't know if it, it, it occurs anywhere else outside of Cecilia Holland, where you have a series of historical novels that, by virtue of adopting the worldview of the characters, become fantasies as you move through the series. Um, in other words, characters are actually speaking to spirits because in the world in which the story would be told, people would believe the characters are speaking to spirits. So we have to then make a decision as a reader, are we, are we going to live within this world? Are there, are there these uh, sort of visionary things really happening? Or are we supposed to view this as a literary diversion from reality in the way we would read a modern fantasy novel? And I know you've used a lot of folklore in your stories, mm. where um, from within the story, it's not a fantasy story. No, it's not. And uh, I know uh, that Icelandic literature has certainly dealt with, with that in their series, not only in the in, in the sagas, but in the current folklore about holy folk. There's a wonderful series of stories by Eleanor Arneson about that, because she lived in Iceland a few years ago. And I think that's, that's always fascinating, because when you're dealing with folk literature, you're not dealing with the categories of fantasy and realism anymore. Oh yes, let's talk about the... On the subject of folk literature, Gary, yes, right, I, I have a little bit of show and tell. Uh -huh. Now, obviously, our listeners cannot, they see, cannot this see this beautiful this, but book, this is but a would you like to describe it? Okay, this is... What color is that? Teal. Teal. Yep. Okay, this is a beautiful teal book by Penguin Classics in hardcover uh, called Tales of the Marvelous and News of the Strange. I love that, News of the Strange. Uh, the first English translation of a medieval medieval Arab fantasy collection with an introduction by uh, Robert Irwin, who's done some of the most useful critical work on the uh, Arabian Nights I've seen. Yeah, so this, this book has a fascinating story to it. The manuscript was mm -hmm. discovered in a library in Istanbul by a German researcher called Helmut Ritter uh, at the early part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it should have been a, a great discovery back then, except that Ritter had just been outed for being gay and been disowned by his professor, hmm. so he couldn't publish anything about this. And he sort of sat on it for a while, and eventually his professor died, and he, he went back to Berlin with the, the hope of uh, making something of this discovery, except it was 1933, and he took one look around at what that Mr. Hitler was doing and scuttled off back to Istanbul again until after the war. So it took a long time for the book to finally get published in Germany, and then, of course, it, it um, even longer time for it to come to the attention of the English-speaking world. So it has only very recently been translated into English, but it's translated from the Arabic or from the German? Uh, it's been retranslated from the Arabic. The reason it took so long is that they were waiting for a chap called Malcolm Lyons, who was in the process of doing mm -hmm. a complete retranslation of The Thousand and One Nights. Uh, and he had to finish that before he could work on this one. But this is a really exciting book because this, from clues in the manuscript, we know dates from around the 10th century, mm -hmm. whereas the earliest manuscript of the Thousand and One Nights that we have dates from the 15th century. 
So this is it's like 500 years earlier. Hmm. There are two stories in here that are also included in the Thousand and One Nights, but all the other stories are new. And in fact, we only have half of it. Uh, we have the contents page, which says that there are uh, 42 chapters in the book, but we only have 18 of them. So hmm. there's a whole load of other things that maybe somewhere in the library in Istanbul will, will yet be discovered. Have you read any of these stories? I, I've read a, a few of the stories. Um, not all of them are fantastical, but some of them certainly contain jinn and other hmm. such monsters. Uh, so they, they're very much in the same vein as The Thousand and One Nights. And in fact, there is, there's one story um, which has that sort of... Uh, Russian doll structure to it mm. that we're, we're so familiar with uh, from The Thousand and One Nights. It, it's um, about a particularly cunning uh, and ruthless woman. It's called The, the Story of Arus al-Ares and Her Deceit, as well as The Wonders of the Seas and Islands. And it, it has a certain amount mm. of uh, voyaging around islands. In fact, the, uh, the central character is discovered by the hero when a, a djinn comes ashore on the island where he's been shipwrecked, bearing a glass casket with the girl's body in it. Hmm. Glass casket, eh? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're all thinking the same thing now. Uh, so there's, there's lots of other stuff. Sophia Samatar, I think, is, is familiar with this. Mm. And uh, the, the last story in the book, I think, the, the story of uh, Maliha and uh, Malhub and the white-footed gazelle, it contains strange and marvellous things. Uh, she says she's done a, a version of... That's a short story, so hmm. um, it's lots of lots of uh, interesting new stuff, as it were. That, uh, well, that goes back to this use of folklore as a, as a source of contemporary fiction. Because you mentioned Sophia has done that. Karen Lord's first novel, obviously, was based on West African folk tales. Nadia Korofor has made a lot of use of this. One of the things that we don't talk enough about hmm. when we talk about science fiction or fantasy's increasing diversity is it's 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 not just a matter of gender and nationality. It's a matter of all these world literature traditions which are now sort of being brought to bear on the fantasy genre. Yeah, and the obvious book to compare to, to this sort of thing is Cat Valenti's The Orphan's Tale, which has that same nested structure mm -hmm. of tales being told within tales. This book doesn't have the overarching structure of Scheherazade that The Thousand and One Nights has, so that's mm -hmm. presumably uh, a technique that might have been developed later, but it does quite often have the, the narrative of somebody coming to, to tell a story to the sultan or the king or whoever. I know there's another tradition, and I have mentioned this before the podcast because I can't remember the title of this book, which I actually reviewed, but it was published, I think, by, as a thousand-page book, The Tale of, I want to say Hamsu or something like that. Genji? <laughs> no, no, no. No, no not Genji. This is, this is a, another uh, Arabian epic. But it's one which apparently had accreted over centuries. In other words, people just added stories to the tradition uh, so that it became uh, not, not a single work, but a whole body of literature. And uh, it's still going on, I gather, uh, to some extent. But well, a, a lot of unknown to the West. A lot of the storytelling will have been oral anyway, so there, there would have been a, a mm -hmm. process of accretion as each mm -hmm. successive performer adds their own little piece mm -hmm. to the tale. And that's essentially what, uh, what apparently happened here. Uh, and that's one of the things that I see, and go back to Karen, to your work, and to Johannes Sinasala's work, is, uh, because, uh, well, especially Johannes' work, because Finnish folklore is something I knew nothing about at all, but uh, it's, it's, it's clearly, you know, uh, informing uh, her work to some extent, uh, and by doing so brings a whole set of uh, uh, fantastic imagery into, uh, 
into modern fantasy. One of the other traditions which has started to emerge a lot is, 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 is Thai mythology, uh, with three or four writers uh, drawing on that just in last year's. And there are wonderful monsters in, in, in Thai mythology that don't have parallels anywhere else, I guess. This floating spine with a human head about it, I forget the name of it, but one of our listeners will tell us. They're just great images, and now they're showing up in, in modern fantasy. Well, there's certainly plenty of it about. The issue all with, with this sort of stuff is uh, the question of appropriation. I, I know, for example, the indigenous mm -hmm. Australians are very keen about that, that if, if you talk to Gillian Pollock about the, the work, and there are now mm -hmm. one or two indigenous Australians who are producing their own literature, mm -hmm. but quite often when they do it, there's a, a complicated process of negotiation with the tribal elders to make sure that when they write it, they write it in such a way that it's not going to be offensive to the people in having done so. What, uh, uh, yeah, and I have to wonder what they would make of something like Peter Weir's film The Last Wave, which is a classic of appropriation, but he's a very good filmmaker, and then you have to figure out where yeah. do we land on that. Um, has that been an issue? I mean, there's, uh, I guess cultural appropriation may be something more crucial in cultures where there are large suppressed indigenous populations. Well, there is one in Sweden. There is? Yeah. Uh, the Sami people. Mm, I've heard, I, well, I know the name, that's all. Um, they have, they have, obviously, they have a very rich mythology of their own, mm -hmm. and um, they have been oppressed for centuries. And they're only now starting to get some sort of emancipation. But um, there hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, uh, there hasn't been a lot of appropriation from uh, in, in Swedish literature by non-Sami authors. So mm. as far as I know, hasn't been a huge issue. Uh, something else that's a very interesting issue is um, when you have when it, when Swedish fantasy writers not drawing on our own culture, but drawing on uh, Anglo, hmm. uh, Anglo uh, fantasy instead. So what you get is not uh, a fantasy literature that has roots in in Swedish uh, mythology, but you have well, you often get carbon copies of Tolkien or Eddings or Jordan and what have you. So what do the Swedes think of the Thor movies? The Thor movies. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the first review I read of, of the Thor movie was hilarious because the reviewer was not aware of the, the Marvel Universe <laughs> and was really upset that they got the mythology wrong. Oh dear. <laughs> that was very funny. But no, I, I think in, in general, Swedes are very delighted by the Thor movies. Good. Yeah. Well, it's a, 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 apart from the special effects and that sort of thing, it's, it's an interesting exercise in science fictionalization of mythology. It certainly um, is, yes. And uh, to, to the extent that I didn't know the Marvel Universe until I saw the films, but I knew there was a Marvel Universe. And to some extent, that's all you need to know, because reality... But they, you know, they use the names, they use many of the characteristics. Loki looks a lot like Loki. Um, and uh, it seems to be just having an enormous amount of fun. Yeah, I think one of the main issues that I have and that some other fans have is, is that maybe one of them is that all the weird stuff that Loki has tried to pull 
mm-hmm. is not in the movies, which is really sad because there are so many weird things that he has done in Norse mythology, and they don't really, they haven't really made it into the comics of the movies. But I, I don't think the movies get accused of appropriation at all because no? they're so. How okay? How do um, people? How how do people respond to a figure like Loki in the Old Gaiman's American Gods, uh, where he again draws on? Uh, Classic mythology, and he draws on mythology from all over the world. There's a Mr. Low Key. Mr. Low Key. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think when it comes to appropriation, um, I don't think that the, the, as in the the old Norse mythology as such, I don't think that we feel very vulnerable to appropriation. I think it partly has to do with the fact, at least when it comes to Sweden, Sweden used to be a superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, we have this whole national romantic sort of, um, oh, what's it called? We believe ourselves as standing higher than other cultures, etc., etc., mm-hmm. etc. So other people appropriating Norse mythology is gets more gets the reaction that oh, well, that's that's sweet. <laughs> it's it's very nice of them to mention us. It, it may that's, be more of a case in Iceland where people still do worship the Aesir, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I cannot speak for people who actually follow uh, follow the belief. They probably have a very, very different view on things. On the other hand, Icelandic literature, uh, the Snorri Sturluson, the sagas and so forth, have been appropriated everywhere. I mean, that's just a kind of standard of, from, you know, Wagner on to uh, David Lindsay and... and uh, well, in, 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 there's a whole complete modern... It's not modern anymore because Tolkien kind of derailed it, but, you know, there was a strong fantasy... Uh, tradition that drew entirely from the Elder Edda uh, throughout I, the 19th century in many countries. I have no objection to the British appropriating the Vikings because they appropriated us for an awful long time. You're looking at me, but I'm going to blame <laughs> the Jutes. <laughs> in, in Britain, yes, it was the Jutes. You, you, you folks appropriated Russia. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, the Viking, I've not seen the Vikings TV show, although I've been told it's not bad. Is any, have, have you seen the series either one? Um, I have, um, with much giggling. Okay. Uh, I've seen some, some. Uh, I, I've seen some of them, uh, but not enough to to give you a detailed criticism. I guess one of the questions I have is that uh, it, this is true of any culture, and, and, and God knows America is, is as bad as anybody. Uh, but on the one hand, there is a sense of wanting to um, escape the worst stereotypes of Viking culture. Uh, on the other hand. In every street corner in the old town of Stockholm, there were baskets full of plastic horned helmets. Oh yeah, those don't really exist. There's, of course they don't. <laughs> That's there's there's one helmet that has been recovered from mm-hmm. that age, and it didn't have any horns. Right. No. And that, that, that's fairly well known. Okay, but uh, somebody said. Uh, I, uh, that's not a way of judging a culture by the souvenirs. Although somebody did say the way you tell. Uh, the definition of Texas is that that's the only place where people buy their own souvenirs, which is probably true. Uh, but there's a. You're, it seems to me that the pop culture is perpetuating the stereotype, or maybe the marketers are figuring the only way to sell is to sell the stereotype, uh, because obviously the the, the realistic. Uh, helmet of uh, the realistic Viking helmet wouldn't be very interesting. It just looks like. A helmet. A no, yeah. I mean, who, we, we like to perpetuate the stereotypes as well. I mean, who doesn't want to perpetuate the stereotype of, of you know, big burly conquerors? Mm-hmm. I guess that's true. So, 
Well, it's one of the things we've talked about uh, occasionally on the podcast, is that stereotypes are not just negative images of, of, of individuals. It's, it's, they're, they're, there are positive stereotypes that are just as destructive and can be. In the United States, for example, um, this is getting a little bit away from fiction, but one of the stereotypes I know that young Asian students face is that they are expected to be brilliant in school. Um, and if they're not good at math, they are made, made to feel that they failed their culture in some way. Uh, and, and yet people who, who, who assume that Asian kids are good at math don't realize they're stereotyping them. Mm. Stereotypes are, are also, of course, an easy way into to doing diversity. I think you can see that in Sense8, the new TV series that mm -hmm. the Wachowskis and J. Michael Straczynski have produced, in that they, they've started out with a multinational cast, people from all over the world, and mm. many of those characters are dreadfully stereotyped at, at first glance, but as the story develops, they begin to give them a little more depth. And I think possibly it was done deliberately to give the American viewers an in into these other cultures that they were trying to represent. Probably was. Mm. Uh, the other stereotype, which, which I, I was on a hobby horse about this, talking at a party night before last, that you don't think of, that, that, that films and TV stereotype intelligent people. The representation of intelligence in a movie like Lucy is appalling. And there's a TV series called Scorpion in the United States, which is about a group of super genius kids. All intelligent people are maladjusted. None of them know how to deal with any kind of sexual matters. Uh, they can only talk to each other. They have to have a translator to order something in a restaurant because they're going to try to order things by chemical names and so forth. And they all wear glasses. They all wear glasses. They're all obsessed with the IQ number, which is something that except from people who are actually members of Mensa, I, I know a lot of highly intelligent people, most of whom don't know or care what their IQ number is, and they know the problematical issues of IQ numbers. And, finally, before I finish my rant, according to the movie Lucy, if you become more and more intelligent, you suddenly develop telekinetic powers and uh, can turn yourself into sort of a spiky computer-like thing. Wouldn't that be nice, though? Well, I would rather look at Scarlett Johansson than that spiky computer-like thing. <laughs> that could be just me. Yes, of course, as we know from the X-Men, after you've developed the telekinetic powers, you eventually become a monster that wants to destroy the universe. But well, that's yeah, you become evil, too. Yeah, yes. you, you, you are emotionless, you are evil. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those mythologies that have built up in popular culture. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole mutant mythology um, is something that's fascinated me because it started in pulp science fiction. It was not something that started with the X-Men. And actually I'm going to be mentioning this in a little bit in my talk in about an hour. But somehow in the 1950s the notion is that if you that, that, that if you were exposed to nuclear radiation in some way you would become a mutation who would then be telepathic. Why do we think that telepathy is uh, an after effect of radiation induced mutations? I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about this whole humans gaining superhuman powers, mm -hmm. and which is that doesn't that go back to mythology? Uh, that by my necessity necessity, if you have the hubris to try to attain the status of god, it probably turns you evil, and the gods will punish you. Probably does uh, to to some extent. That's, that 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 makes sense. But we are about running out of time here. 
I want to ask before uh, we, we let you go, because Karin Tedbeck, we've wanted to have on this podcast for a while. What are you working on now? I am working on a novel, mm -hmm. which is set in the same universe as the story Augusta Prima, which is, is that mm -hmm. incidentally the one that got me the translation award. Yes. Which is also in the collection Jagannath, which yes. is still available from Cheeky Frog. Cheeky Frog. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's what I'm doing, and I can't really give you any details because it's a work in progress, but um, keep your fingers crossed. Excellent. We will look forward to it, and we will look forward to it in English at some point. Oh, I'm writing it in English. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Even, okay. Yeah. Even better. That's interesting. Um, so we'll keep our eyes open for that. I want to thank uh, Karen Tidbeck. I want to thank Cheryl Morgan, who will be back with us at some point, probably to interpret incomprehensible Hugo, Hugo voting numbers <laughs> once they're released. Um, but we're not going to talk about that right now at this moment. And this again has been from Mariham Oland, Finland, the Coon Street Podcast. Here we are. <laughs> See what Jonathan oh, makes of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.